Hello, and welcome to Notes from the Conservatory, a podcast from the Bob Cole Conservatory of Music at California State University, Long Beach. This podcast is a chronicle of conversations and interviews with our faculty, students, and guest artists. I'm your host, Richard Cooper. Today, I'm bringing you a conversation with Rob Freer, the head of Brass Studies here at the Conservatory, and Anthony Plogue, who is an internationally recognized conductor, composer, and trumpet player. Mr. Plogue was here to do some master classes with our brass students and conduct our wind band. And now here is Rob Freer and Anthony Plogue. Hi, I'm Rob Freer, Director of Brass Studies at Cal State Long Beach. I'm in my 14th year in this position, and we've been lucky enough in those 14 years to host Anthony Plogue three times. Yesterday he was with us to coach quintets, do a master class, and listen to a concert of some of his music with our brass players. So, welcome, Tony. Thanks, great to be here. Tony is one of the premier brass teachers and composers in the world, and I've been lucky enough to know him for a very long time, and my wife has a history with him even farther back because she actually took trumpet lessons from his father. She was in the sixth grade at the time, and during her lessons, Tony would be in the back room practicing. And so she would hear one of the finest trumpet players ever while she was being very patiently coached through the Clark book by Tony's father. In Tony's playing, it's apparent that he believed in his father's belief in the Clark book because his technique is flawless, and the things he writes require flawless technique. One of the best ways to develop that is by studying the works of Herbert L. Clark. Uh, and then, of course, you have to expand on them to play Tony's stuff because he's taken it way beyond Clark. So how do you feel about that, Tony? I think you're being way too nice. Uh, <laughs> I told the class yesterday that Lyndon Johnson, when he would get a great introduction, would say, I wish my parents were here to hear this because my father would have loved it and my mother would have believed it. So <laughs> I think you're being very nice. It's easy to be nice when you're dealing with somebody who you've respected for so long. I first heard Tony play at the funeral for my brother's high school band director, and I thought it was the Cal State Northridge Brass Ensemble. It turns out Tony was the teacher at the time at Cal State Northridge, and he had this absolutely flawless technique and gorgeous tone. I was probably in the ninth grade at the time. Came away just absolutely flabbergasted by what I'd heard. It was one of those things that made me work harder and made me a better trumpet player. And it turns out that it wasn't a student, it was the teacher there. I think the first time we actually worked together was maybe a Janacek Sinfonietta with the Philharmonic. Oh, yeah, the conductor was Simon Rattle, I think. Yeah, the first yeah. time you conducted the LA Philharmonic. Oh, was that the first time you conducted yeah. it? Yeah, the first time I met Al Vizzuti actually was on that concert. Alan was on that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, I didn't remember that. Yeah. But that's the, the level of players that Tony hangs with, Alan Vizzuti and, and the LA Philharmonic and Thomas Stevens. We have two teachers in common which is Irving Bush, who is my teacher from when I was 14 till I was 18, and then Thomas Stevens, who uh, was my teacher from 18 to 21. And how old were you when you were studying with those guys, Tony? Well, Irving was best friends with my brother, and my father was almost like a surrogate father for Irving, so I was maybe 13 when I studied. I started with my father, and then because he knew Irving uh, so well, uh, I went to Irving, I think, when I was 13, and when I was 18 or 19, he said, there's this new third trumpet player in the orchestra, and he's, he's really great, and I want you to quit studying with me and, and go to this new teacher. And at the time, I was sort of actually sort of hurt because I thought, well, maybe he doesn't think I'm 
progressing enough or something like that. I thought that I wasn't doing such a good job. But that's a lesson that I really took to heart later, which is try and give your students as many opportunities to get as many different ideas as possible. And that third trumpet player was Tom Stevens, who later became principal trumpet player and in his time was absolutely one of the most iconic and, and still, even though he passed away last July, one of the most iconic and influential trumpet players ever. And so um, I think Rob and I both um, have had the incredible luck of being in a town in a specific time where there were great teachers because there was Tom and Irving and also James Stamp. These three people now are regarded around the world you know, as being really great, and they were really great, and we were really lucky, and I think we realized it then, but I think we realize it even more now. You want to hear a sick factoid? <laughs> Here we go. As the crow flies, Jim Stamp lived about two and a half miles from me. Really? Okay. And I never took a lesson from him. Oh, okay. Our entire lives are colored by the teachings of Jim Stamp, and I'm one of the few people, even though I live that close to him, for some reason I never actually took a lesson from Stamp. Huh. And now, of course, I regret that beyond belief. Yeah. But at the time, it, it just didn't work out. And like you, I sort of got stuck in a rut with certain teachers. Um, I was with my teacher that I went to in junior high, and he finally kicked me out to go to Irving. Mm -hmm. And then Irving kicked me out to go to Tom. Mm -hmm. And Tom kicked me around enough. I started studying with other teachers just to try and get better. He, he piqued my curiosity. Yeah. So I realized that I needed to go out and get a broader education. And I'm sure he did the same thing for you. Yeah, and I think actually today, there are more opportunities for students because students can go on YouTube and they can listen to master classes of the great trumpet teachers, but they can also then listen to master classes of great opera singers and great pianists and just great musicians so that they're not just in this box of being a trumpet player, but they broaden their horizons in terms of the way they think about things. And I'm a, I'm a composer as well, and so when I'm copying music, I listen to interviews all the time. And usually they're not musicians, you know, usually they'll be people in other areas that I think are just really exceptional people and just being around, even though it's not in person, being around minds like that, you know, is, is really inspiring. One of the stories I heard is that Tom Stevens, when he was in the military, was taught speed reading. And he used that skill throughout his life to read a lot of nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And I find Tony to be very similar to Tom in the fact that he has such broad knowledge of things outside of music. Tom could start talking about presidents, about senators, he could talk about foreign leaders, and Tony is also an avid hiker and has hiked part of the John Muir Trail and wants to do the entire Pacific Crest Trail. No, no, not Pacific Crest Trail. <laughs> My wife wouldn't let me do that. That's six months. Okay. He wants to do the entire I would John walk Muir that. If, if I made it through the trail, I would get home to nothing. <laughs> You'd probably be nothing at that point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's true. Yeah, I probably wouldn't even get home. But um, the John Muir Trail is about three to three and a half weeks. The Pacific Crest Trail is um, six months. That's Mexico to Canada, so... Oh, that would take a while. Yeah, that would take a while. Yeah. <laughs> but Tony's avid curiosity about things outside of music, I think, adds a lot to the music he writes. And I know that when I get excited about something outside of music, it adds to my ability to express when I'm playing music. I give talks some of the times to, to schools, and one of the things I say, and it sounds sort of strange at the beginning, but I say, always try to be the dumbest person in the room meaning that you surround yourself with people that are better than you. And I've talked to Rob a fair amount these last couple of days about a really good friend of mine, Ron Kidd. He was the head of product development for Disney. 
And he was talking about Frank Wells, who was second in charge when Michael Eisner was there. Ron said he was only in a couple of meetings with Frank Wells, but there are all these brilliant people there. And I know if I get with people who are much smarter than I am, I don't want to look stupid, so I don't want to ask a question. And Frank Wells would, somebody would be speaking about something, and Frank Wells would stop them and say, okay, I'm sorry, I don't understand that. Could you please explain it again so I understand it? And he would do that several times, even though he was surrounded with people who knew more than he did. When I heard that story, I thought, wow, that's great. I always have to push myself to do that because my tendency is to nod my head and act like I sort of get it. But I think trying to surround yourself with people who are more empathetic or more passionate or more kind or giving or know more about a specific aspect of playing. And, you know, maybe somebody's not the greatest trumpet player, but maybe the way they treat somebody is great. So as an example, I met a friend I hadn't seen him probably about 35 or 40 years. And he was a trumpet student at Northridge. And now he's worked as a psychiatrist. And just meeting him again after so many years, you can tell he's just such a gentle, caring person. And okay, you know, he didn't have a professional career as a trumpet player, but being around people like that is inspiring and influential. So Tony, when did you start the trumpet? Um, I was 10 years old. When I was nine, I took piano lessons and never practiced. And so after about a year, my dad, who was a brass teacher, and he taught trumpet and trombone, not French horn, he said, okay, you're gonna take a brass instrument so he could control me. I mean, that sounds negative, but you know, so that I would practice at least a little bit. And I was even smaller than I am now, and so I I realized that I would not reach seventh position uh, on the trombone. And so I said, okay, trumpet. And so that's how I got started on the trumpet. In a way, I think I was really lucky because even though my dad was a brass teacher, he he didn't force me to practice. He wanted me to practice. But I had, I think, a really normal childhood of playing sports and playing baseball and doing things that kids do. And, you know, I practiced the trumpet some. And then later on, maybe when I was 15 or 16, I would have periods where I'd practice more and then periods where I wouldn't practice that much. And then finally, when I was maybe about 18, I joined the American Youth Symphony and had a couple of friends in the orchestra. All of a sudden, I realized that classical music was fun. And these these two brass players, we were just absolutely passionate about brass music and playing brass instruments, but we were laughing all the time during rehearsals. I mean, it was not a high level of maturity at all. So, I mean, that that sort of got me started. And then during those summers, I, I started practicing about six hours a day, two in the morning, two in the afternoon, two in the evening. But I guess my level of playing really developed over that period because I was working so hard. But it was fun, so you say work, but it really wasn't work. It was like play. I would have had more fun practicing than maybe going to see a movie or playing baseball or something like that. So then you did your college at UCLA, right? I was at Glendale College for my first two years and then UCLA for my second two years. And who were your teachers there? Uh, Bob Duvall, who was principal in the LA Philharmonic. Then did you do graduate work? No, I'm uneducated. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do have a bachelor's degree. So after UCLA, did you stay in LA and do stuff? Well, actually I was really lucky because I forget when I did the audition, I think I was maybe still a student at UCLA, but I auditioned for the San Antonio Symphony. And the first trumpet player in the orchestra was fired. And so I got called to do the last six weeks with the orchestra. Pretty much right after UCLA, I went to San Antonio. It was in San Antonio for three years. And then from San Antonio, was Utah next? So in San Antonio, um, full disclosure, I was fired in San Antonio after three years. That's sort of a long story, but I just mention that because I think a lot of people 
tend to think that if they have a failure, it's sort of the end of the world, and it's never fun to have a failure. But getting fired from your first job is is not a great career recommendation. But you know, I'm still alive, so I left the orchestra and came back to LA and freelanced in Los Angeles for a year, and then went to the Utah Symphony in 1974 and was there 74 to 76. Then got really idealistic and decided that I wanted to try and pursue a solo career, even though at that time I don't think there were really any solos in the United States. And tried to be a composer, but it was a lot more about playing trumpet then. And so I left the Utah Symphony to come back to L.A. to try and support myself through playing the trumpet, trying to get solos and starting on a a composing career. So one of my first exposures to you was the recording where you guys did the Vern Reynolds music for Five Trumpets. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Was that during that time when you were in L.A. as a soloist? Yeah, that was after I left the Utah Symphony. So that was maybe, I don't know, 78 or 79. That's just guessing. Pretty soon after, I know. Yeah, yeah. So. But if you haven't heard it, uh, listeners, the Vern Reynolds music for Five Trumpets with Anthony Plogue and the Los Angeles Philharmonic Trumpet Section is one of the greatest trumpet ensemble recordings ever. It inspired me, and to this day... Trumpet Ensemble at Long Beach State is an absolute staple because of that recording. I mean, I, I just have to make them play trumpet ensembles because of what I heard on that recording. That was fun to do. We had, a, I think, a two-hour rehearsal on Sunday. It was conducted by Bob Henderson, who's a really, really talented musician and conductor. And then we had a two-and-a-half-hour session on Tuesday. So I played first on that, and Tom Stevens, I gave Tom the second part, and he says, no, I want to play fifth. And I've never heard such great low trumpet playing on that recording. And Bob Duvall, who was always an incredible gentleman, um, first trumpet in the L.A. Philharmonic at that time, played third, and he had the flu that night, and he still came, and he was feeling terrible, and he still sounded fantastic. One of the amazing things about that recording is Tom, of course, we know has one of the best low registers ever, and he's on that. Best everything ever. Well, best everything ever. But that fifth part is just incredible with him playing it and then you ended up with Mario on second trumpet yeah. which of course is the very technical, technical part thing, yeah. and Mario's technique is flawless yeah. and then Irving had the big almost long tone solo yeah. and everybody had a part that fit them so well including yeah. you and it's it's so exciting to listen to especially knowing all of the people on it at this point all having been influences in my life and seeing how that piece addressed the characteristics of those five individuals so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you remember what else was on that album? Actually, just recently, Peter Chris, the president of Crystal Records, got in touch with me and he wanted to put out compilations of things that people did. So, actually, I think that was 1977. And then I did one in 79 and 81, I think. And so we took different things from different albums. So I think on that album, it was the first movement of the Hovhannis Sonata for trumpet and organ. Two duets, one that I had written and Frank Campo had written. Um, And I think maybe on that album was a piece by Leroy Southers Uh um, for trumpet, bassoon, and piano, which I asked him to write. It was a really interesting combination of instruments. Oh, Animal Ditties that I wrote, which is sort of cute series of four short movements based on the poetry of Ogden Nash. The turtle lives twixt plated decks which practically conceal its sex. I think it clever of the turtle in such a fix to be so fertile. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> really, really great poems, uh, wonderful poems. So, and, and actually what was terrific about that, too, 
I did two sets of animal ditties for trumpet and piano. And the narrator we had when I recorded the second set as well, he did the first set, was Hal Smith. And if anybody is listening to this who remembers the old Andy Griffith show, do you remember that? Hal Smith was um, Otis, the town drunk who would sleep in jail, right? And he was incredibly funny. And he loved to tell stories. I mean, he had an unbelievable voice. So for each movement, he could change things. And in between takes, he'd tell stories. And I mean, it was just fantastic. You also wrote an Animal Ditties for Brass Quintet. And mm, we, did, mm-hmm. we did a performance of that with Alan Chapman for the voice from KBC. No kidding. Wow. I knew Alan. A really, time, yeah. really a, fu- a fun concert. And Alan really got into the, to it. Really? Okay. But the thing about the Animal Ditties is the poetry is delightful and the music matches it so beautifully. I don't know how you have the ability to match the pentameter of the poetry so well with music. Those are easy to write. You know, some pieces are difficult to write and and these were easy to write. There's this thing that some people are visual, some people are oral, and some people are tactile. And I realized that for myself, somebody will say, oh yeah, I heard that concert. Without realizing, I'll say, oh yeah, I saw that concert. And so for me, animal ditties were really easy to write because it's like if I saw the animal, you know, and, and sort of saw the animal doing something, that was just easy to write, most of the animal ditties. Actually, I think probably all of the animal ditties. I did a set for Horn that I wrote just in a couple of days, you know, and not that I struggle over things, you know, like a struggling artist or anything, but this was just easy to write. And so I was in L.A. for about 11 years. I was freelancing to get by and trying to do solo stuff, and I tend to be really idealistic, so I thought, okay, I'm just going to burn the bridges, you know, no plan B, and I'm just going to do solo stuff. I'm not going to do freelance work anymore. I wasn't married, so, you know, I could be broke, and that's still really stupid. But I had a couple of really, really close friends who were like heroes for me who live in Utah, Nick Norton and his wife Claudia. So I left Los Angeles and moved to Utah. Met my wife on a blind date, and she had never been to Europe, so I wrote to some people that I knew, and I thought that maybe I could get like three or four days of doing a master class or a course, and that could help pay for our way to go over, and we could have a week or two in, in Europe, because I had been to Europe on tours and things like that. And it turned out that one of the people that I wrote to is a good friend, Boo Nielsen, who played with the Malmö Symphony in southern Sweden. And it turned out that the first trumpet player in Malmö was alcoholic, and they were making him take a year off. And he said, would you like to play a year with the Malmö Symphony? And all of a sudden, you know, going from two or three days, considering that, to a full year. And so we decided, why not? So we went to Malmö, and we actually lived in Malmö for two years, got married in Sweden and went to Italy then after that for a very short time where she was going to be a nurse, but she got pregnant with our daughter, and there was a job in the Musikhochschule in Freiburg that opened up, and I auditioned for that and was able to get it. So we've been in Freiburg probably for about 27 years now, and I was at the Hochschule for about 20 years. And talking about failure, I met Nick Norton first, even though he's a hero of mine now. I met him first when he was a student, and he wanted to study with Vincent Chikowitz in Chicago. And Vincent Chikowitz was at that time had the reputation for the, being the greatest teacher in the country, phenomenal teacher. And he auditioned for, for Chikowitz, and I don't know if he was nervous or what, but he had a bad day, and he didn't get into Northwestern University. So he did get into USC, where Tom Stevens, my teacher, was the main teacher. And about a month before he started, Tom quit. And so I was the other teacher. So he sort of got transferred to me. And we ended up being good friends. And as I mentioned, I moved back to Utah to be with Nick and his wife, Claudia. 
and met my wife on a blind date there. If Nick had passed his audition for Northwestern, my children would not be on this planet. So you never know what seems like a failure. Not only how is it going to affect your life, but how is it going to affect other people's lives. Our band at Long Beach, with John Carnahan, is currently playing a piece of yours called Textures. Uh, I understand that was one of your first big works for a large ensemble. Actually, I had written a brass octet, which is, I don't think you'd call that large, maybe semi-large or mini-large or whatever. But yeah, so Textures was, was the first piece that I ever wrote for a large ensemble. And it was interesting hearing it yesterday. I hadn't heard it for years. And so hearing it yesterday was quite interesting. Our, our band's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It really sounds, sounds amazing. So yesterday you also coached two of your quintets, mm-hmm. which were Mosaics and Four Sketches. Both of those were written, I believe, in the 70s? No. Four Sketches, no, I'd say that was the 80s. And then Mosaics was written in the early 90s. Well, those are two staples of the repertoire. I know the Spanish brass recording of Four Sketches is amazing. Right. Yeah. And then the American Brass Quintet recording of Mosaics is spectacular. Yeah, and I, I believe Center City recorded one or both of them also. Performances of that piece can be so different because one of the things you do, especially in Four Sketches, is colors. You explore mm-hmm. colors. And so every different mute, every different trumpet or instrument is going to sound a little bit different with a mute. And the way you write, the ensemble gets incredibly different colors. Now, is that something you thought about when you were writing them? No, I don't think I thought about colors that much. For me, my concept just about composing in general is when you're actually writing. And it's probably like writing a book, too. I mean, you have ideas, but it's like a series of problems that you have to solve. How do I make this transition? How do I do this? Et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you'll write different versions or different sketches, and you'll have a lot of things like talking about failure, a lot of things you write down that fail, that don't work. And I think one way you can tell that you're getting more experienced is you can determine what is a false path quicker so that you know what might work and what might not work. And then my sort of second approach to that is just thinking that the more life experience that you have and the more you read and try and fill your mind with ideas from great people, somehow that gets mixed up in your head and might come out. And for me, what I've tried to do more recently is to really try to get into more substantial themes. For example, I wrote (laughs) my most recent opera is about a drone operator having a mental breakdown. And I wrote another opera with a Holocaust theme based on Germany, but doesn't take place at any time or in any specific country. The libretto and text and everything is my own in addition to the music. And I also wrote a a large oratorio about the first U.S. big environmental battle, which was lost, which was the battle to save the Hetch Hetchy Valley, and wrote a cantata about this house in Nashville that takes in women who have been victims of sexual trafficking and prostitution and addiction. So I'm not sure that I'm trying to change my writing, but by trying to tackle themes that are more substantial or meaningful to me, maybe that changes my style of writing, perhaps. Listening to this piece yesterday was very interesting in terms of the chords that I used then, that they're brighter then than I would use now. So thank you very much for everything you did yesterday. The, the students were absolutely thrilled to have you here. Uh, I had a great time. I, so what's next? Well, I've been doing a fair amount of traveling over the past four or five years. After Freiburg, I taught in Oslo, Norway for four years where it was a 60% position, so I'd fly up eight times a semester or something like that for maybe three days. And and so that's over now. So I'm trying to do a lot more composing, you know, trying basically getting up and composing 
basically all day. So I have some projects that I'm working on, but um, this is maybe a little bit embarrassing, but what I'm doing now is I've just started teaching myself how to learn um, Sibelius, the engraving system. And I'm a real techno idiot. So these two operas that I mentioned, I'm working on a number of composition projects, um, but also I'm engraving these two operas. So there's always work to do, you know, but I enjoy it, so it's fun. Well, thanks, Tony. This has been an amazing couple of days. It's always great to see you. Always a pleasure to serve you a nice glass of wine. <laughs> yeah, that's something we didn't talk about, but yeah, that was, that was nice, too. This has been Notes from the Conservatory from the Bob Cole Conservatory of Music at California State University, Long Beach. Thanks for listening.